Hello and welcome to Footnotes the Cicerone podcast, a podcast to inspire you about outdoor travel and activities in the UK and across the world. I'm Hannah and I hope you enjoy this episode. You can always email me with your thoughts or questions on live at cicerone.co.uk and I'd love to hear from you. So in this episode, I'm here talking to Carol Dorgan, who, among other things, is the author of our new guidebook to the Brittany Coast Path. So hi, Carol. Hi, Hannah. Pleasure to be here. It is an absolute pleasure to be talking about this book. I mean, Cicerone only make guidebooks to good places. That's kind of the point, is that we make walking and trekking and cycling books to places that we believe are nice to go and do these activities But having said that, every now and then a book comes along that just speaks to my soul. And this book, this route just looks like it's just a route for me, I think. It looks perfectly doable for someone who's not mega experienced. There's some amazing places that you stop along the way. It just looks fantastic. So first of all, can you tell us where is the, uh, well, it's obviously Brittany, but where is the Brittany Coast Path? Well, this section of the Brittany Coast Path that we're talking about begins at, uh, it's along the north coast of Brittany, start there. And it begins in at Mont Saint-Michel, which is on the border between Normandy and Brittany. And in fact, Britons and Normans dispute over which department or the region it should be in. It starts in Mont Saint-Michel, carries on west following the coast as far as Roscoff. And so it goes through three French departments. If you well, as the seagull flies, the distance from Mont Saint Michel to Roscoff is about 170 kilometers. And if you walk along the GR 34, it's more like 625 kilometers. And so that tells you something about the route and the coast and the nature of it all. It's the coast is highly indented, and this um, follows the coast all the way. The trail is called the Sentier des Douaniers, which is the customs officer's path. And there are customs paths in, in many places, but this is one where you know they had to follow every little cove and inlet and estuary and out around every headland to make sure that the smugglers were, were caught, basically. And there, since there are so many places where a smuggler could load or land contraband, you know, the trail follows all these places. And so it's, it's, uh, it's quite a, a great way of exploring the coast to follow the route that was taken by those customs officers all those years ago. It's no longer, you know, used for that kind of purpose, but the trail has been maintained and has been restored in, in recent years. And you even, you do walk past uh, some old, buildings, some small stone buildings that are called corps de garde, where the customs officers were based or sheltered while they were on duty. So uh, the past of the customs officer's path is still there. It makes me wonder how many smugglers they actually caught. Because you can imagine they had these two poor customs officers or something patrolling 600 kilometres. (laughs) I can imagine it was quite easy to get contraband into France. (laughs) Well, I'm afraid I have no data on that subject, but I think you're probably right. Uh, I mean, the smugglers are are very, you know, resourceful, 
And it's a lot of territory to cover. And of course, they were also crossing the land border. And the, the incentives for smuggling were enormous. I mean, back in the old regime of France before the revolution, one of the key elements here was the fact that the salt tax, which was called la gabelle, did not apply in Brittany. This dates back to privileges that were granted or or maintained when France annexed Brittany in 1532. And so the price of salt was very, very low in Brittany compared to elsewhere in France where the gabelle was very high. It was a factor of about 25 to 1. And uh, I've read somewhere in a report by Louis XVI's finance minister, Jacques Necker, uh, who reported to the king in 1784 that there were 23,000 men deployed to stop smuggling all around France, not just Brittany. So a lot of them were walking along that uh, Sentier, de, what later called the Sentier des Douaniers, and also patrolling the land border between, say, Brittany, where you could buy salt for two or three livres per quintal, which is 100 kilos, and over in Anjou next door, it would cost 56 or 57 livres. So, so that created those incentives you know, gave people, uh, you know, a, a reason to, to smuggle and to find ways to avoid those customs officers. Fantastic. I'm surprised it's called Gabelle, La Gabelle. The, La Gabelle. The that's, I, don't, I don't know the, the etymology of that word, but that's the famous salt tax, which is a, had a lot of influence on the, on the causes of the French Revolution. It was so unequal, you know, in Brittany, no Gabelle. In Lorraine, which I wrote about once in a previous book, it was relatively low because salt was produced there, whereas in the area around Paris, it was very high. And not only was it high, but you had to, you were required to buy a minimum amount of salt per year for all adults. And so the injustice of the Gabelle was one of the grievances that people had that helped to spark the French Revolution. Every day is an opportunity to learn something when I'm talking to you, Carol. Who, who knew that we'd be talking about salt tax and the French Revolution in our episode about the Brittany Coast Path? <laughs> well, I was, I was hoping that we would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was your plan all along. That's um, right. So it, it starts at Mont Saint-Michel, which is... Yes. is a fantastic tourist attraction in its own yes. right, isn't it? People come from thousands of miles to, it used to be a pilgrimage destination. To yeah, it still is, really. Mixed in there somewhere, there are pilgrims, but most of them are tourists buying postcards and, and uh, special omelets at a particular restaurant. But but it, it's, it's quite a sight. And you appreciate this when you're walking on the GR34 as well, because Mont Saint-Michel is this great mound, uh, natural stone mound, but then, of course, built up with fortifications and then abbey church upon it. And so from a great distance, the land around there is all flat. So you just see it in the distance for many kilometers before you get there. And so when you have a good view of Mont Saint-Michel, you can sort of sense what a thrill it would have been and still would be for pilgrims to see this on the horizon and as their destination. And the way... You know, I've written this book, you, you basically leave Mont Saint-Michel, but of course somebody could walk the other way. But anyway, you have a, a several kilometer walk at the beginning where you, the Mont Saint-Michel the, um, right in front of you with its tall spire and so forth. And then you turn west. So it's, it's, it's a pretty spectacular place 
so spectacular that it has, you know, gets really crowded with tourists. But the, the French uh, have recently, and recently, I mean, in the last 10 years or so, done a big project to return Mont Saint-Michel to its natural state as an island, at least an island at high tide. And previously there was a causeway that was built in the 19th century and other works. And so the water didn't flow around it. So silt accumulated and it was no longer, it was just, it became a kind of a peninsula, but that was all changed. Now there's a, a bridge which allows water to flow around it. The dam has been built that is designed in a way to increase the flow of water with the uh, ebbing tide and then carrying sediment out and so forth. So it's, it's really quite nice. And you don't, no longer can park a car right beside Mont Saint-Michel. You have to park in special, enormous parking lots about two and a half kilometers away. And then there are shuttle buses that take visitors to the island or you know, the island, or you can walk. So it's, it's a, it's quite a, quite a, it's worth a visit, even if it's kind of crowded, but in a way I feel when I go there that I'm, it's a little bit like the pilgrims of the middle ages. I mean, there were crowds of people then too, and there were people trying to mm-hmm. sell them, you know, little knickknacks and souvenirs and, and, and uh, memorial things the way they're trying <laughs> yeah. to sell you postcards now. So, uh, you know, what's wrong with that? Yeah. But then it's very nice to turn west and, and you're more or less on your own walking away on the GR34. I was talking to Timmy Mallet for one of our earlier episodes and he cycled to Mont Saint-Michel as part of his Camino cycle ride. Right. And he said he, he had a room booked and it, it was at the, the very, very, very top of of the, oh, yeah. the hill. And so he had to carry his e-bike oh. up the entire thing and he got to the top and sort of gasped out where can where can I put my bike and and they they told him that he had to take it right back down to the bottom (laughs) (laughs) for storage oh my e-bikes are not light either they're not light not light at all so yeah that always makes me chuckle now when I think of that but apart from apart from Saint-Michel you go past Somewhere that sounds amazing, the Emerald Coast. Yes, the stretch of coast from Mont Saint-Michel going all the way past Cap Friel, I'd say, uh, is called the Emerald Coast, Côte d'Emerald. And you really appreciate that name. I mean, it sounds a little bit like a tourist office, you know, bit of puffery. But on a sunny day, the water does sparkle with that emerald color. And the great thing is that as you're walking on the GRF 34, you are right above the water beside it. And so you get a good view of that sparkling emerald water of the Channel Coast. And so it's very attractive and uh, very pleasant walking. As you said, it's it's a pretty accessible trail, but there are places where it goes up and down fairly steeply, not for very long, but for a while. And and there's a section, the best part of the uh, Emerald Coast, I would say, would be from Pointe-du-Groin to the approach to Saint-Malo. And Pointe du Grain is a, around the west, you know, west of uh, Mont Saint Michel. You pass Concal and you go up to this this headland, Pointe du Grain, and from there towards uh, Saint Malo is a very very spectacular trail. Traverses across a steep hillside cliff practically. Uh, the trail is a good one, but quite a bit exposed in a few places. So you want to watch your footing. And I would prefer not to do it on a rainy, windy day either, but on a nice sunny day and you have the Emerald Coast there beside you. It's really, really beautiful. If, like me, you want to immediately go and walk the Brittany Coast Path, 
then we're offering 25% discount off Carol's Guidebook if you purchase at the Cicerone website. Just go to cicerone.co.uk and enter the code BRITTANY25 and I really hope I see you there one day. The GR34 um, is a much longer route, isn't it? Yes. And and the, the part described in your book is the 624-kilometre stretch of this this wider route. So where does the GR34 start and finish? Well, it starts at Mont Saint-Michel, and so goes those 624 kilometres as far as Roscoff, then continues along the northern coast for several, another 100 kilometres or so to go around what the French call the Pointe de Bretagne, the, the far uh, farthest point uh, west, and then curves inland and follows the coast south, southeast or so, past uh, a major city like Brest, past the Crozon Peninsula, which is a very special, spectacular place too. And then finally ending after passing along the southern coast of Brittany at Saint-Nazaire, uh, which is at the, the mouth of the Loire River. Uh, so that's what makes up over 2,000 kilometers from Mont-Saint-Michel to Saint-Nazaire. It's all really well worth walking on. I, th- I think the northern coast is, is certainly one of the best parts of it or the part that we're covering here. There are other good parts, though, too. And certainly around the Pointe de Bretagne, there's some spectacular coastal paths and, and uh, headlands and so on. And I'm planning to go out there and do some walking and maybe some riding, you know, pretty soon. <laughs> there could be a sequel. <laughs> yeah. Well, I feel very lucky that uh, – there wasn't already a whole series of Cicerone guidebooks for the for Brittany because, it's, as you were saying at the beginning, it's a really you know clearly a excellent place to to walk in and write about. Yeah, I think um, we we get that quite often. If I can't believe you haven't got a book for yeah. for here, and you just yeah. think we're we're only a small team and there's only yeah. so many we can create. Yeah, sometimes you think oh, I can't believe we haven't already had this for years. So the the other thing about this walk is that the entire route that we cover in the Brittany Coast Path guidebooks would take you about a month. But actually what you've done is you've included suggestions for a couple of five-day highlights. Uh, And I really like that as well because, again, not everybody can take a month off work to go and and do a walk or a trek. But taking five days off with, with a weekend to go around some of the sites just sounds perfect to me. Yes, and that's quite feasible. And you can particularly note that for people who are coming from the United Kingdom or Ireland, so nearby, a week-long outing, a week-long trip could work quite well because there's, good, there are good uh, tr- connections by both train and by ferry. Uh, there are f- ferries that connect Britain and Ireland to Saint-Malo, and to Roscoff. And it's also, of course, possible to go out to Brittany by train. And there are this train service that runs out to Saint-Malo and to several other towns, cities along the route that's covered by this book, including uh, Saint-Brieuc and Pampol, Lannion, and Morlaix. And then, of course, Within Brittany, uh, there are intercity buses that connect many of the towns and cities along this route, as well as some uh, urban bus lines from the cities, such as Saint-Malo and Morlaix and, and Lannion and so on, 
that extend out of out of those cities some distance, and you can also often get, you know, what's a short bus ride can be a one day stage uh, for a, a hiker. So those transport options make it quite feasible for somebody to travel, spend one day or so traveling to some point in Brittany where they could then pick up a, a, a the route for a five days of walking and then arrive at a place where there is also train or bus service that would enable them to get back home, uh, whether it's in the UK or Ireland or Paris or Frankfurt or whatever in a day. So that's, you know, there, there are several uh, recommended places. Uh, I'll pick out just one, I guess, uh, out of those. There are several mentioned, as you say, in the book, but the one I would sort of start with, put at the top of the list would be the Pink Granite Coast. That was next Another on my list because I'm, I'm such a yeah. rock geek that Pink Granite just sounds, yeah, I, I want to see that. <laughs> You will really be amazed when you see these rocks. You've probably seen, you have seen, I know, some of the pictures. Um, they're extraordinary. I mean, you look at these these boulders of pink granite or other you know, gray granite, whatever. You wonder how in the world were these boulders even formed? What geological forces produced these things? And then, you know, how do they get where they are? And, and in some cases, you wonder how do they stay where they are? Because they seem to be teetering on each other and so forth and stacks of these things, all different shapes. So it is really quite spectacular. There's a section called the Pink Granite Coast, which is roughly from Treguier to Lannion, I would say. Uh, that's certainly one of the, the five-day s- sections that you can walk on. The heart of the Pink Granite Coast, I would say, is between perros and Plumenach, or further on to Trebrodin. And it is just extraordinary. Just every step of the way, you're looking at these rocks and, and amazed at how they were formed. People have given little whimsical names to some of these boulders, uh, <laughs> and you can get a you can get a map that lists where they, you know, there's there's Napoleon's hat, and there's the overturned <laughs> bottle, and there's the turtle, and the mushroom, and you know the wave. I think there's one there. And you can give your own names. So it's it's sort of fun. And sometimes you have to sort of stand in line to take a picture because you know, everybody wants to take a picture of, of Napoleon's hat or whatever it is. It's worth the walk. I've been up and down that trail several times and I've enjoyed it. Crowds or no crowds. It's it's really quite spectacular. And, and I took a stab at explaining how these rocks were, were formed over the millions of years in the book. And so if you're a rock expert, you can take a look at that and decide whether I got it right. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, I said, I'm, I said I'm a geek. I'm not an expert. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, you, you, you'll enjoy looking at those rocks. I mean, they really are uh, beautiful, and, and it's a nice trail. So the, the Pink Granite Coast is, is uh, well-named, I would say. There's some really spectacular boulders to look at. There's just so many things. There's so many things in this book that just look amazing. Another thing that, that jumped out at me is there's a – is it Seven, Seven Islands Bird Sanctuary? Yes. Septil, Seven so that Islands. That sounds nice. It is. It is. The, it's a little bit of history there. The, there used to be thousands and thousands of Atlantic puffins that uh, nested along this coast. And in the 19th century, they were massacred. Uh, they're, they're a very droll looking bird. I don't understand why they were such a prey for us. But anyway, the numbers were just decimated and and of course there are thin people who, who, who would massacre who would massacre a puffin you would why, wonder why did they you massacre? would wonder yeah. uh, it, that was they they're were so charming 
Right. They look, they're, they're called, you know, clowns of the sea. There's all these droll things, you know, they, you know, they look so funny, you know, just, why would anybody want to hurt one? But they, they, they were, they were prey for hunters. And so finally people reacted and, and uh, the local association for the protection of birds, the League for uh, la Protection des Oiseaux, LPO, um, was formed specifically to protect what were left of the, of the, puffins and uh so that was established and then the set il the seven islands uh sanctuary was established i think mainly to protect the puffins um there are not huge numbers of them there now but they are there are there and the puffins you know live out and one of these birds that lives out offshore miles away uh you know during most of the time most of its life and then only comes back to land to to uh, nest and uh, so they they come back in the spring to nest at, at the Seven Islands, um, and you can see them there. But the, the main and have you have you seen them, Carol? When they they're such proficient birds when they're swimming or when they're flying, yeah. they're incredible yes. to watch. And then they land and they can't do it. You can tell yeah. that they don't spend much time in their lives on on land because they sort of crash land. And then roll all over the place and stumble about like they just—they yeah, don't know yeah. what they're doing. It's—it's it's well, hilarious. Well, you must when you go go to you know, time your visit to the nesting period for the for the puffins because they're not there all the time, of course. Um, yeah. And and they also have to share the island with thousands and thousands of northern gannets. Oh, uh, I love gannets as well. It's a, it's a fou de basson in in French, and uh, they. The last thing I last count they're 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 counted. There's a census taken using photography and so forth and so on. And the last count that I read dates back in a few years was that there are over twenty thousand nesting couples of gannets wow. on the seven islands. And um, they, if you if you're already familiar with gannets, I, I was learning about this myself when I went out there. They're spectacular. They're the biggest seabirds, I think, in, in Europe. Not the biggest in the world, but certainly around here. And they um, hunt by diving vertically into the water to grab sardines and sprats and things like that. Um, and they hit 100 kilometers an hour. Quite a sight. And yeah, super when, fast. Yeah. And when you, uh, you could, there are uh, excursion boats to go out to the seven islands. Most of them are, most of the islands are closed to human visitors. They can only go around in boats. There's one of those islands where there used to be some monks, a monastery or some sort of hermitage, and you can go there, but there's not much to visit there. I think it's just mainly you go out there on a boat and see the, you know, the islands and the birds. And as you approach the main, the biggest island, it appears to be white, like covered with snow or something like that. It's all birds. <laughs> it's birds. It's gannets. It yeah. just, it's wall to wall gannets. I didn't see any of them you know, diving into the water the way I've seen it on, you know, videos and something like that. But I imagine, you know, there, there wouldn't be much chance for a sardine to survive anywhere near that island. <laughs> but it's it's worth taking that little boat ride out. And I think for people who are bird watchers, but also who are just interested in birds or appreciate them, walking along this trail in the northern coast uh, is really a great experience because there are so many uh, different birds, different seabirds, various different kinds of gulls, uh, as well as these gannets and puffins and 
and cormorants as well and so forth. It's a bird watcher's dream, really, to walk along there, especially for, and I appreciate it too, because I'm not really a bird watcher, but I learned about them. And you can see these birds so much more than you see birds when you walk through a forest. In the forest, you hear them, but to see them isn't always so so easy. But Yeah, you have to be careful if, if, you, if there's terns there. That they have you ever been attacked by a load of Arctic terns? No, I haven't. I, I I've avoided that. So so but, lots lots of these sort of coastal bird colonies have Arctic terns and they're quite protective over their nests as well uh, sensible. But they, they literally dive bomb you and they, they peck at your head to make you go away. Oh, and really? and you can do oh, tours of, of these places where they suggest that you wear a hat or at least a hood <laughs> because the birds will just come and get you. And I <laughs> went with my wife somewhere and I can't remember. It was off Northumberland, I think. And and they left her alone completely, but they yeah. absolutely went for me. And I was getting br- like a bruised head from how much they were attacking my head. I was like, oh, I'm wow. vegetarian. I'm not going to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I haven't. Well, I'll be careful next time. <laughs> I'm not sure. It, it must, yeah. Probably would be some around. But one thing, you, the gulls will just steal your your lunch. If you if you give them a chance, they'll snatch you know a sandwich right out of your hand, or certainly if you put it down. Of course, some of this this behavior is is conditioned by the presence of humans and the food that they leave around and things like that. But but the I, I just love watching them and seeing them. And and uh, in fact, I recently bought a new pair of binoculars, so I'm going to do a little bit more uh, bird watching next time I'm out there. That's really good. That's it. So it's certainly a a feature of walking on the GR34 that you can enjoy seeing birds, watching them, and so forth. The different seasons too. Not many people probably hike the. GR34 in, in in the winter, although some do. I, I see reports about this on Facebook, for example. And the weather can be perfectly beautiful in the winter. And there are places where migratory birds spend the winter or, or rest on their migrations during the winter. For example, around the Bay of San Briuc, uh, there are thousands and thousands of birds there. It's a very popular spot for migrating birds. So, uh, you know, you can you can see all sorts of birds at different times of year. Yeah, that I mean, that's why I started this episode by saying every now and then a book comes along and it's just such a good match. And there's there's just so much on this route that yes. I mean, I yeah, I, clearly I could talk about rocks and and birds for for hours. So I will be careful not to inflict that <laughs> upon our listeners. <laughs> it's probably best to avoid that because it's a coastal path. I think people often assume that coastal paths will be easy. And that they'll be flat and it's just a bit of a beach walk. Um, and as you've already said, as the seagull flies, it's a much, much shorter distance because there's a lot of up and down and in and out uh, around yes. the coast. Um, yes. But what is, what's the actual terrain like? The terrain is, is quite varied. Uh, it is certainly not all flat. And there are some pretty steep bits here and there, or, you know, frequently I could even say. But it's never st- steep for very long. I mean, the 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 you don't reach great heights. Um, there's one point on the coast between Saint Brieuc and Pampol, uh, Pluha, which is the highest coastal cliff in Brittany. Not the highest point in Brittany because inland there's something higher, but the cl- highest coastal cliff. And that's a hundred meters high, so that's you know not very high. But if you walk up a steep trail for 80 meters or 100 meters, really, because you can reach that point from the 
from a beach nearby, you know, you're going to feel it in your legs. So it has some up and down like that in places where you go uh, uphill and then, of course, downhill. And there are a few sections of the trail with one in particular between uh, Lokirec and Pluganu towards the end of the of the hike, where the trail goes up and down on the on the coast uh, on a very beautiful, spectacular trail right above the, the the sea, up and down for several kilometers, and the total uh, elevation gain for that day's uh, stage is about 900 meters, and and you go down about 900 meters as well. So you you can be, can look forward to some uh, strenuous walking but never you know it's never technically difficult and it's not really that difficult for the average fit trekker to go up a few hundred meters and then go down and then and then of course there are sections of the trail that are quite flat uh there are tr- sections where you go through forests very calm and peaceful forests or across heathland uh the approach for example to cap Friel, uh, is is com- pretty much completely level, and you're out in the open there across heathland, and it's a very easy walk. And there are sections where you walk on or beside the beaches, um, and 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 so there are an enormous number of beaches that you pass or or you walk along or come close to. Uh, there's there's one section of the of the trail between Capriel and uh, Saint-Brieuc, uh where you pass went during one stage a, about a dozen beaches with names, you know, one after another, as well as little coves and patches of sand that don't have a particular name. So it's a lot of that. Um, and of course, if you are on a, if the trail does follow a beach or go onto a beach, it may be flooded, uh, covered, you know, with water at high tide. And so in that case, there are generally uh, variant trails that are, indicated marked and indicated on maps so you can walk inland a bit and a higher ground to avoid the high tide but that's that doesn't really complicate your life too much some of those are just uh sections that are flooded at a spring high tide and not the average daily high tide so but there are so you walk on beaches and in fact there's at least one or two where i suggest that you walk on the beach instead of going on the trail inland some distance and, and uh, it's you know Beach walking can be very pleasant. Uh, walking in soft sand can be difficult, but you know, depending on the quality of the of the beach and so forth, it's it's very pleasant, you know. And you can stick your yeah. take your boots off and put your feet in the water and take a dip too. You know, people do all enjoy it all in all different ways. Yeah, I did a trail race once on a sand dune beach, mm. and and trying to, I mean, I wasn't even running at that point. I was just trying to walk up yes. and over these sand dunes and it was like I was like something out of a cartoon because my legs were just spinning and I wasn't yeah. going anywhere so, yeah that would be yeah. That's, that can be difficult no it's true it People can be really tiring you, you start regretting the tarmac at a certain point which is pretty desperate <laughs> yeah you want a, a beach where the tide has has just been in yes yeah, so it, it's been sand. recently dampened I think that's the perfect that's right yeah <laughs> um so what's your what's your favorite bit? My favorite the, bit. Well, I guess I, I already gave that away, I suppose. I think the the uh the pink granite coast and in particular oh, yeah, the section did, the, the did, section yeah. between uh Perhoskerek and, and Plugan uh not Plugan uh Plumenach is gotta be one of the favorites. 
Um, but I also enjoyed the the section between Lokirhek and Pluganu, the one I described where the, the trail goes up and down quite steeply for a while. But it's just it's just it's a good walk. I mean, if you're ready for that little bit of extra exercise, you'll enjoy it very much. And, and it's not all up and down too. It's, it's some of it's sweeping across these steep slopes on a traverse. And uh, I, I think that's that, that in general, that kind of walk, it's really agreeable when you're, you're, you're on this slope, which drops down to the water where the rocks and the waves are crashing and so forth and traversing across slopes like that. And, and there's slopes of that sort on that section between Lokirhek and Pluganu. Also in the approach to the estuary of Lannion, uh, there's some beautiful traverse walking across these slopes. I like that kind of walking uh, quite well. That's sort of, so those are some of my favorites. And I'm assuming that the food is all marvelous. Oh, yes, it is marvelous. Uh, this is France, after all. But there is also, you know, distinctive local cuisine. I guess Brittany is 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 well known for its crepe, and in fact, around France and where, where I live in the Paris area, you know, creperies are there, and they usually are blue and white decor, which suggests the sea and which suggests Brittany and so forth. And in Brittany, uh, uh, the savory pancake that you would order is a galette. And they put all sorts of things, you know, ham and cheese and eggs and and uh, ratatouille. You know, if you're a vegetarian, you can enjoy those and so forth. And then for a dessert, uh, they have is a crepe and it's with a sweet filling. So and creperie are all over the place, and and it's a good you know meal which can be more or less you know, filling and heavy. It can be a little lighter or something to have in the middle of the day, perhaps while you're walking if you pass a creperie. And then I would say uh, seafood, shellfish in particular, is really big in Brittany, very large uh, producer of shellfish, in particular oysters. And you pass early on in this this book, uh, Cancao, which is a town famous for its oysters. Then further on, you'll see a lot of cultivation of mussels, the moules. And so mussels are a very popular dish uh, with with, often with chips, moules frites. And uh, scallops, coquille Saint-Jacques, uh, are one of my favorites. <laughs> and uh, there's a there's there are really strict rules for for harvesting coquille Saint-Jacques, and a limited there's a limited season. Um, and I've been puzzled sometimes by seeing them on the menu outside that season, and I ask, you know, why where are these coming from? And sometimes the waiter doesn't really know. And I think either they're coming from if they're fresh, they're coming from some other area where the rules, uh, regulations for harvesting them are, are, are uh, different or more liberal, or maybe they're just frozen. And in fact, frozen coquille Saint-Jacques can be good. We, we freeze ours sometimes, and I then saute them, and they're great. So anyway, that's so the food there. And then uh, some specialized, one other specialized, specialty, specialized food is, is um, uh, salt meadow lamb. When you walk around Mont-Saint-Michel, you'll see sheep grazing out, on uh, in fields right beside the water and uh, outside the dike that you're walking on. And during these spring high tides, those fields, uh, meadows are submerged by the water. And so the 
the grass that's growing there picks up, a, you know, a, a, some salt and it gives a special flavor, a little touch of salty flavor to the lamb. Uh, and that's a local specialty. So you can enjoy the food. And then there are some, some desserts that are just going to be, you know, calorie bombs. Um, and, uh, and, and so you can enjoy, you can restore. And then also Breton, along with Normans too, I should say, uh, make very fine cider. Uh, and people often like to accompany a, a meal of crepe or a galette with uh, locally produced cider. So those are, so those are some of the culinary highlights. Uh, yeah. You need to, you need to eat well after a day of walking. Yes, yes. Sure. <laughs> I sometimes eat too well after a day of <laughs> That I think that happens quite a lot. You yeah. get quite a lot of people who go for these treks and they assume that they're going to, you know, come back and be a perfectly slim-toned version of themselves, yeah. but actually they've realised that their provisions are too good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then uh, just quickly, what what are the accommodation options like? They're pretty good. Um, I think one reason why they're good is because Brittany really is a, a very popular area for holidays. And so uh, there's a supply that meets that demand. Um, but of course, it's somewhat concentrated in areas that res- attract the most tourists. Um, but you have the full range of hotels, of course, of different levels, a number of stars, different qualities. Um, many, many uh, B&Bs in French and Chambre d'Hôte. Uh, there are some uh, youth hostels in, in several towns. There are uh, gîtes d'étape. Not a lot of gîtes d'étape, but some, which I've really enjoyed. Uh, gîtes d'étape is, is like a hostel, basically, um, with varying... Sometimes there are food available. Sometimes uh, you're on your own. And then there's camping as well. There are a lot of campgrounds in Brittany, again, especially along the coast, right where you want them to be, because many people come for holiday and they want to you know, camp and then walk down to the beach. So there are many uh, commercial and municipal campgrounds. And, you know, there's often a place for you know people. They're mainly catering to people coming in a car or bicycle, motorcycle and so forth. But they also, of course, are happy to welcome uh, trekkers. And a few of those campgrounds also have some sort of little cabin or tent that they offer to trekkers who are not camping, don't have camping gear, the tent and so forth. And so you can stay in uh, one of those, which is very convenient sometimes and, and also quite you know, economical. Uh, and if it's mentioned here, if you're going to anticipate, if you anticipate staying in a, in a cabin in one of those campgrounds, you should bring along with you, uh, either a sleeping bag or, or more um, more commonly uh, your meat sack. That's it. You already knew. Yeah, a sac à viande, uh, <laughs> which is you know very small and light and so forth. And because you you they will not they'll sometimes they'll provide a blanket maybe, but they want you to have your own sleeping bag liner, which the French call a sac à viande, and uh, and that's that's certainly worth carrying. And then if you do that, it's also helpful to have a a light towel. Um, if you're staying in hotels, you don't need to bring your own towels usually. But if you're going to be in a campground or if you're going to be in a gîte d'étape, you should have your own towel. And if you're going to stop in some of the little coves and have a, a sneaky swim, you know, yeah. having a having a really small light towel is probably not a bad idea anyway. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's right. So uh, 
So, you know, so it's so the accommodations are good, uh, but there will be, you know, during the July, August, especially a lot of pressure on some of those accommodations around popular spots. I can mention here that, you know, just to get, illustrate how Brittany attracts uh, holidaymakers, uh, a town, one town in particular, I know uh, it's called San Carlo Guido has a permanent population of a little over 3,000 people. And in the summer, peak season in the summer, it, it rises to about 30,000 people. So Ooh. by a factor of almost 10, which is pretty dramatic. And some of those are people are, are people who have second homes, holiday homes or apartments more often in these towns. And, and, and this, is a, you know, this is a controversial factor in a way or, or, or phenomenon. If you walk along some of these towns and they're on the boardwalk in front of the, the uh, apartment buildings and the beach, you'll see these apartment buildings and all the shutters are down. You know, if you're there in, in May, if you come there in July, they'll all be up, I suppose. But population and the activity fluctuates uh, enormously. And uh, it's one of the reasons why I would, I, I think it is good to hike in May. I mean, sometimes you know, you'd say, oh, it's a little strange having all these places shuttered down, but the, the, the businesses will be open in May and June. It's a good time. Weather's good. It's not too crowded, whereas you'll find it more complicated to get a place to stay in, uh, in July and August. Um, and to go back to camping, quite a number of people camp wild in uh, Brittany. And it's a little bit, you know, you need to be discreet. It's, it's not always expressly uh, permitted, but it's tolerated. And the French sometimes make a distinction between what they call camping, which could be extended period of time, you know, setting up your tent and you know, for a week or more, and a bivouac, which is just a, a discreet small backpacker's tent pitched in the late afternoon, evening, and then knocked down early next morning, leaving no trace, of course, of your presence, no fires and anything like that, and on you go. And, and people who do that uh, have no particular difficulties. They may not find it very easy to get water nearby. You have to plan your logistics that way, but otherwise it works well. A lot of people do camp, and I've, I've met some and talked with them, and I've also read people's descriptions of them online as well. So that's, that's an important, and for many people, that's, that's, I mean, camping is great. You know, it's, it's economical. You don't have to worry about reserving in advance. Uh, you just have to plan your, your water and food carefully so that you have it when you need it uh, on your own. And for some of the people that might be a bit put off to hear you talking about how touristed it is, I think, out of all those tourists, there's not going to be that many of them that are going to be walking this route. So right. you probably get when when you're staying somewhere, that's going to be your chance to have the crowds and experience the the busyness of the yeah. tourist destination. But within your day walking, you're probably not going to feel like it's a overpopulated route, are you at all? No, I don't think that. I, I think that's true. Um, I think it, it varies quite a bit in certain places too. As I said, you know, that section between Perros Quirec and Plumenach, you're going to see a lot of people, at least, you know, even in, in May or something like that. Whereas elsewhere, it's, you're much more on your own walking along. You're rarely going to go for hours without seeing somebody, but it's, it's pretty much a, you know, a different, it's a different experience out in the, the, the wild. Most people come to, to lie on the beach and to, you know, windsurf and, build sandcastles and things like that and have a pleasant seaside holiday and to yeah. put 10 kilos on your back and walk for 
for 20 kilometers or 30, uh, it's not everybody's uh, choice of a, of a vacation. For some people, it's the only kind of vacation they want to do. And I, that's sort of, I fall in that category, I'd say. Yeah, I, I can't wait. It just it just makes me want to pack my things and just go go and look Good. at some rocks and point out some gannets and ha- have some crips. It just sounds perfect. So thank you for that. Uh, you, you've, you've really sold it to me, Carol. Good. Good. Well, I want to hear about it when you do a trip report. I hope you enjoyed the latest episode of Footnotes, the Cicerone podcast. I'd love to know what you think or if there's anything you'd like us to cover in future episodes. Please email live at cicerone.co.uk or leave a review on your podcast platform. You can follow or subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss new episodes, or you can sign up to our newsletter for all our latest news, events, and guidebooks. Visit cicerone.co.uk for further details. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, come and find us on our social channels. We're on all the main ones as at Cicerone Press, and we also have a Facebook group, Cicerone Connect, where you can meet and chat to other outdoor enthusiasts. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you soon.